Well, this morning we continue going through our our series in the Gospel of Mark, and hey, it's been like five weeks and we're finally out of the first chapter now. Uh, We are in chapter two. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses one through 12 this week. Uh, Before we read God's word, let's pray that uh, the Spirit would be with us here, blessing the reading and the preaching of his word. Lord God, as we come before you, as we listen, give us an attentiveness. There are many things that seek to draw us our attention away. Um, Some of it is in our own thoughts, some of it is in our own own hearts, and some of it is from the the enemy who wants to come in here and uh, take away the, the seed that is sown here. And we pray that you would protect us and guard us in this time. That we would come around, united around your word this morning. That we would come as your people begging to hear from you and coming and responding in faith. And we pray because we need here your spirit to be going forth and moving with your word to bring us to life yet again so that we might respond accordingly, respond with faith as we see Jesus here again. Jesus who is crucified and risen and is seated on high even right now for us. This is the same Jesus here. And we need him just as much as these people, as, this, as this, uh, this paralytic, as we will read today, as he needed him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Let me read uh, Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, this is the word of God. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, Your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. By the way, I realize I just forgot to dismiss children to Children's Church, too. So they are back there as well, if, if, you've, if you've forgotten that. Um, but what is it that makes up a person? What makes you as a person? Now, most of us would probably think about our minds or our personalities, our temperaments, our dreams, or whatever else we define ourselves by. Some of us might gravitate towards vocations or our roles in life. Maybe something related to our physical attributes. But you're only 
It, who you are when all of those parts of you, all of those aspects are wrapped up together into your one person. Or else you'd be a very one-dimensional and I'd probably say a very uninteresting person. The same goes with our, with our human natures. People will often buy into this materialistic view of humanity that we are only physical people. Or in this platonic idea that we are only spiritual people. Or in one way or the other that we are emphasized in one way. That we are emphasized as physical people. Or emphasized as spiritual people. Thus actually separating ourselves when God created us as both. He created us both as body and soul brought together. And to regard ourselves as emphasizing one or the other is to regard ourselves actually in a lesser way. In a way that, that separates what God has put together. Both of those parts are important for us, which is one of the tragedies of death. It is a ripping apart, albeit in a temporary way, but ripping apart the union between our bodies and our souls. And so when Jesus restored people in the New Testament, he did so in ways that had the whole people in mind. He came to treat the conditions that we bear in both our bodies and in our souls. And if we don't look at ourselves then through that lens of being a whole person with needs that reflect um, our whole selves, then we can become overly fixated on only having one aspect of our humanity restored. And Jesus' promise is that he came to restore us and to make all things new. And he comes to make people like you and me new. New in our whole selves, body and in soul. And we cannot be content then with only being physically restored, but also to be restored back to God. We, our needs go deeper than what we think or what we see or what we feel. And the good news in all this is that Jesus knows our deepest needs. He came to restore us in both body and in soul. But that doesn't always happen, though, in the ways that we expect in that moment and we see that in this story here of Jesus healing a man who is paralyzed he restores him in the whole person and his interactions with the three groups of people here that we're going to see highlights three aspects of what restoration is of what true restoration is and so the first one we're going to look at here is we're going to look at the paralytic and his friends and from the paralytic and his friends, we see that restoration is brought about through faith. Now, we don't know much about this man here, other than the paralysis that he suffered from. And we don't know much about his four friends either here. But what we do know about them is that it emphasizes their faith. They bring their friend in faith. That faith shows itself in a determined manner. And when Jesus sees them, he recognizes their faith. Now, there's three things I want us to note about the faith here that they have. One is, it's a desperate faith. There is a sense of desperation as they are coming to Jesus. They must get to him. Now, word gets around town that Jesus is back here. And these men want to help out their paralyzed friend. They know that this is the only hope that he has. On his own, he has no hope. He's not just going to get better. His life is destined to be relegated upon his mattress and be cared for his loved ones. The only chance for this paralyzed man to be restored is by encountering Jesus. 
But we'll see that that proves more difficult than imagined because they come to the house and what do they see? It's packed to the gills. It's surrounded by people who are trying to get in. They're trying to, to listen to Jesus or even just catch a glimpse of him. But they're not, they're not deadered by this. They're desperate to get to Jesus here. And so they take desperate measures. They must get to him and they will stop at nothing to, to reach him because they know that without Jesus, they have no faith. Or sorry, they have no hope. This is the desperation of faith here. But it's also a drastic faith that they have. They are absolutely determined to get to Jesus and their faith takes these drastic measures. So one of them gets this crazy idea. We can't get in, but you get an axe, get a shovel and meet us on the roof. Now, we think like, oh, this must have been a really big deal. Like, like this mean like a, a pulleys and ladders and all that? Well, most of the houses in that day had flat roofs because you would, it, was, uh, it was packed down, packed down earth, almost like on a thatched surface. So it was flat, like a patio, where you would spend your evenings uh, seeking relief from, from, from the, the heat of the day up there. So houses generally had stairs going up the side. So they did just take him up the stairs. But where their faith, though took this drastic turn was when they started to destroy a portion of the roof by opening up a hole large enough to lower this man down to Jesus. Again, that's quite the plan that they've hatched up here, and it's desperation. This was the only way imaginable that they had that they could get to Jesus. Now think about how risky all of this was. For one thing, this wasn't even their house. <laughs> they were ripping a hole in the roof of a stranger's home. And so who's liable for the damage? It's them. But second, what if their plan didn't work? As if Jesus was, was in the middle there teaching, he's interrupted now by this ruckus that's happening upstairs, this thump, 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 crack. Right? And then the dust starts to fall down and his hole starts to open up. The owner of the house is like probably yelling at them, what are you doing? Everyone's murmuring and what, you know, What's going on here? And then this hole is eventually opened up the whole way. And here comes this man on his bed being lowered down in front of Jesus. Now, what if this wasn't a good time? What if Jesus said, no, I'm, I'm teaching right now. Why are you interrupting me in the middle of this? I'm not doing healings right now. You've got to wait your turn. Well, what about everyone else there who wanted to hear Jesus? See, there's no guarantee that this plan of theirs, this plan of faith, was actually going to work. But these men, though, they risked so much to give their friends some hope and to get, them, get him near Jesus. But I also wanted to see third here that it is a devoted faith. It is a faith that looks to God, and as it does so, it's lovingly devoted to others. And namely, their friend. For when he was unable to get to Jesus... Physically, they did what they could to get him there because they loved him, because they were devoted to him. And it goes to show how God is pleased to work among our loving relationships with one another and how although faith is exercised by individuals, it's also done in the midst of a community who helps one another in our struggles and we point one another to Jesus. And so what does this desperate, drastic, devoted faith look like for us it stops at nothing to get to jesus because it must have him it's a faith that reaches out in the darkness and it prays 
that Jesus would grasp our hand. It gives up so much to have him. It takes risks. It gives up everything, including all of the offerings of the world or of what we think is best for ourselves. Because it has counted the cost. And it has seen that Jesus is more valuable and he's more beautiful than anything else. It's a faith that helps one another along in our weaknesses. Pointing one another to Jesus. Pointing one another to the common hope that we have. Even carrying one uh, one another along when we are paralyzed by our fears or paralyzed in our struggles or even just tired because of our own weariness that we have. But there's one more important aspect of this to note. And it's a a faith that doesn't disappoint. Verse 5 Note that it says Jesus sees their faith. And then he addresses the paralytic with this welcoming tenderness. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. It's easy to miss. But note how he addresses him. Son. There's a sense of welcoming there. A sense of this pleasure that he has. He approves of this man and he speaks these beautiful words of pardon. And none of this comes to the paralytic because of anything that he did. It hadn't, it, he didn't even come because of, what his, because of what his friends did. What was it that motivated them to all do a dra- this drastic thing? It was their faith. That they would do anything to get close to Jesus because they knew who he was. See, restoration comes through Jesus. But coming to Jesus requires faith. It's only when we feel our desperation that we will come to him. And he doesn't turn them away. He doesn't turn anyone away. Not when they come clinging to him. And you see it over and over in the Gospels. People come to Jesus empty. But they, in, in faith though, and they leave filled. The only people who are turned away or who are, who are disappointed are those who come for some other reason. Or who come on some other basis. Or without actually feeling the need that they have. But what is it that you're looking for in Jesus? Sometimes disappointment comes when we are offered something quite different than what we anticipated or that we asked for. He restores. Jesus restores. But what does that look like? Well, let's turn second here, not just to the paralytic and his friends, but let's look specifically at the paralytic himself. And from this, we see that restoration shows and heals our deepest needs. Jesus restores this man, but he restores him in an unexpected way. He looks at him. He looks at him as a whole person, and he sees the deeper need that he has, which stretches beyond his physical condition. Now, a good doctor isn't content to treat only your symptoms. The doctor's job is to diagnose and to take care of the underlying condition that manifests itself in those symptoms. And so Jesus, here as the great physician, diagnoses the paralytic's deeper need, his deeper problem, and he heals him of it. The fundamental problem that needed restoring wasn't his disability. It was his broken relationship with God due to his sin. That's why he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, is this what the paralytic expected? I don't know. And his response here isn't given for us either. 
But the thing is, Jesus knew this man. He knew him inside and out. And he didn't only look at him as a paralytic in desperate need of healing. He saw him as a broken man in desperate need of restoration down to the soul. As someone who needed to be brought back to God and forgiven of all of his sins. See, Jesus doesn't just look at our physical selves and of all which is related to that. Everything that's physical, everything that part of us that's mental, every part of us that's emotional. But he also looks at us down in the soul too. He looks at us in, as the whole person from his angle. He looks at us as whole people who are in need of restoration. He knows our needs better than we do. And that's why he came to not only heal the physically broken, but to also take a cross, to take the cross where the sins of his people would be laid upon himself and he would bring them then into the welcoming arms of his heavenly father. See, ultimately, the root cause of this man's condition was sin. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I want you to listen to this carefully. There's no indication that this man was paralyzed because of his own sins or anything his, that he did. But instead, his paralysis was a symptom of the presence of sin in this world. When Jesus declared that his sins were forgiven... He wasn't implying that his suffering or his condition was due to anything, any particular sin that he had committed. Or that he's not saying that there was some direct correlation between his own disability and a sin that he had done. That's not what Jesus is saying. There's an instance in John 9 where Jesus and his disciples encounter a man who's born blind. And they ask, well, who sinned for this man to be born blind? Did, did his parents sin or did he sin? And Jesus says, neither. Or there's another time in Luke 13 where they're reflecting on a tragic event where this tower had fallen down and collapsed and it had killed a number of people. And Jesus asked, do you think that they were killed in that because they were bigger sinners than you? Well, so maybe we should ask why the tower didn't fall on your own head instead. Now, to be clear, there are times when we experience suffering and physical conditions as consequences from our own sin and actions. Right, so liver disease and cirrhosis happens uh, from a life of alcoholism. Being in a car crash and crippled might be a consequence of drunk driving. But what about instances where the individual who's suffering is passive? What about the 16-year-old girl who's in a car, who's sitting at the stop sign, who's rammed into from the side by that same drunk driver, and she's left in a wheelchair for the rest of her life? Or what about when cancer strikes someone in the prime of their life? What are we to make of congenital diseases, or of mental illness, or of autoimmune disorders? Are those people to examine themselves for a particular sin that they committed. No. What they are, though, are symptoms of the brokenness and of the sin which infects the whole world. They cry out that there is something that is dreadfully wrong with this place in which we live. And we all of us feel it in, in different ways. There's not a direct line of causation that can be drawn from our sins 
to our individual experiences of suffering when they arise. But they are connected to sin in a general sense. Back down to the first sin of Adam in the garden, where everything then after that point was wrecked and put into a state of sin and misery, of ruin, of fallenness, of collapse and futility. They're all products of the shroud which has fallen upon the world so that we experience it in ways that it wasn't intended when God created all things good. And all of this reminds us that being made whole is more than just physical healing. Wholeness can only come through a robust restoration with God to heal not only the symptoms of sin, but to, sin, but, 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 uh, to, um, to heal also sin and its destructive effects on the world and on individuals. So when Jesus declares to the paralytic that his sins are forgiven, he is taking the first steps to effect restoration upon him. He is loosening his soul from the bonds of sin and tearing off that which estranged him from, from God so that he might then be restored back into relationship with him. It's the compassion and love of Jesus that doesn't just heal him and send him off on his way, but he knows the deeper need And he restores him back into the loving embrace of God the Father. And the paradox is that this healing was affected by suffering. The suffering of Jesus on the cross. Where Jesus took all the sins of his people and he put it to death upon himself. That he was killing the deepest disease that infects all of us. I had the privilege in college of studying for a semester uh, back in Israel. And one day I visited the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the traditional site of Jesus' crucifixion, along with a tomb that's interestingly enough like only 30 yards away in the same church. I don't know why that is, but whatever. Whether or not that's actually, they're actually the real sites or not, uh, it doesn't matter. It's beyond the point here. But what does matter to all of this is that there is a rock there. There's a stone, which was supposedly the one underneath the cross of Jesus and which Jesus' blood ran all over. And all around that stone, if you go and visit there today, that stone on the floor, there's a crowd of people, and they all have pictures of their loved ones who were sick. And they're placing them upon the rock, and they're praying that they would be healed. Or they take handkerchiefs or other things like that, and they rub them there upon the rock, hoping that they would be imbued with some sort of spiritual power so that they could take them home and then work some sort of miracle for their family or friends. Now, there are many things that are sad and tragic about that whole scene. Some of it is just the mysticism, treating Jesus as magical. But this one, though, was the most tragic. Masses of people who are misdiagnosing the problem and missing the cure that was right in front of them. So much here that they missed what they really needed was allegedly poured out upon that rock right there. The blood of Jesus to atone for their sins and to restore them back to God. Let's think about that for a moment for ourselves. Have we subtly bought into thinking that if I can only be physically healed from this disease, then things will be all right? Or if I can be relieved of this mental disorder or healed from this emotional trauma that everything's going to be okay? It's noteworthy to recognize that Jesus separates forgiveness from physical healing. But though he will later here bring them back together, but even then it's a sign to prove his authority to forgive to the scribes who don't believe. 
And his words are separate. But that doesn't mean, though, that Jesus is disinterested in the physical condition of his people. Because if the cross is the restoration in reconciling our relationships with God, then his resurrection, then, is the restoration and the healing of our physical selves. Jesus crucified gives us hope from our sins. Jesus resurrected gives hope for our bodies. When he came out of the tomb, it was a sign that for the first time it's in history, sin and its effects upon the world were defeated. Jesus was living proof of that. The Bible refers to him as being the first fruits of the new creation. Because Jesus lives restored, restored in body and in soul, then so will all of those who are in him. And there's a new creation hope that is laid up and that is sure for his people who come to him in faith. That same sort of desperate faith that those four men had as they tore apart the roof and got their friend to Jesus. Now it might sound uncaring that Jesus didn't immediately heal the paralytic of his condition. But there's something more important, though, that we need to see here. What Jesus was promising him was much more than a regained bodily ability or physical movement. It was this new creation. It was this restoration hope. It was a future that can only exist free from the spoiling sense of sin. Because without that, being healed would only represent some temporary relief. It is inevitable that he would have had some other sort of physical suffering at some point. In life, you know, at some time, as all of us do in our own ways. So what's the significance then of declaring his sins to be forgiven? It's his, Jesus' words of welcome into his new creation kingdom. You are forgiven and you are free. You are reconciled and you belong to me now. And I have so much beauty and joy in store that's laid up for you. Just wait. See, for the first time there... This paralytic had real hope. His fate of remaining on his mattress for the rest of his life was suddenly upended because he was now forgiven and part of a kingdom where he would be restored in the fullest way possible, body and soul. And friends, that's the same kingdom, that's the same hope that he still offers out for people just like you and me. See, Jesus was never once disinterested in this man's suffering or in his condition, nor is he ever disinterested in the condition or the suffering of his people. Insisting on our healing right now is to jump the gun on what's promised in immortality and the eternal restoration that is in store. Now, no matter if God brings healing to a person right now or not, that's not the whole story. If that happens, praise God. That's beautiful. But if not then we continue to pray and we continue to mourn for the suffering. And none of it is a sign of God's favor or displeasure of his love or his anger. But no matter what happens there, it's not the whole story. If someone is healed, then it's going to be something else then that's going to happen to them until inevitably they go to the grave. Because true restoration isn't in getting better, but it's being clothed in the glory and the immortality of Christ's resurrection eternally someday. Okay, so we've looked at the paralytic and the paralytic and his friends, but there's one other group of people here for us to look at, and that's the scribes. And the scribes here, when we, as we look at them, we see that restoration confronts us with who Jesus is. 
Now, all this time, there's a group of scribes who are sitting and watching all the events unfolding ahead of, before them. And the scribes prove to be the antithesis of the paralytic and of his friends. The friends are stuck outside, and they're trying to get in. But the scribes are inside, and they're actually sitting down there front and center. The friends have a desperate faith, but the scribes remain suspicious, and they grumble about this whole ordeal, what's happening. And as Jesus pronounces the forgiveness of sins, they get upset, and they claim that Jesus is speaking blasphemy. Verse 7, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Because they know, actually they know correctly, I would add, that only God can forgive sins. If sin is so defiling and it has such a destructive effect on the world, then of course only God can deal with sin. And if all sins are ultimately also an affront against God, then only God can forgive those offenses. But even though they were right... That doesn't mean that they were right all the way. They were also so, so wrong. Because they recognize what this implies about Jesus' statement. Wait a second, he's equating himself with God. And in their minds, there was no way that God could come down in humanity like they saw here with Jesus. He was too grand. God was too glorious. Not like this man that we have right here. They were too concerned with what they perceived as protecting the otherness of God that what they didn't see was the glory of God in, in the person of Jesus. And the most tragic part of all this is that they knew their Old Testament so well, but they didn't actually understand God or his ways all along. Because if so, they would have recognized that every gracious act of God's mercy is, its, is itself a condescension. Every promise of deliverance from God made good. Every instance of his presence coming to dwell with his people, every provision that he had made for atonement, all of it revealed that God is not content to remain far off from their people in their needs, but rather to come down and to restore them back to himself. It's too easy to take an unbelieving view of Jesus that mirrors the scribes, not accusing him of blasphemy, but do we also doubt, though, that he's unable to do what he says he'll do. Right? We, we receive those words of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. We hear of his promises already laid up to restore us fully as, as whole people, body and soul. But then when we look oursel at ourselves in our sinfulness, we look at ourselves in our physical and spiritually broken conditions, we see how much of a mess we are. But friends, he knows about you. He knows more about you than you do yourself. He knows more about himself than you do in that particular moment as well. And even for seasoned believers, it's, it's so easy to convince ourselves from what we ought to know and from what we've grown up knowing. There's no need to search for excuses on what God can't do. So listen to his words and hear what he says he can do and what he will do. And then to drive his point home and to show them who he really is, he then tells this paralytic to get up and walk. He heals him. Right? The scribes want proof. Telling the paralytic that he's forgiven is something only God can do. Talk is easy, though. And so telling the paralytic to get up and walk, that's something else right there. And so Jesus gives them proof by healing this man. He shows his divine authority to not only forgive this man's sin, but also, though, here, he validates it by doing something tangible that only God can do. 
But there's something that's easy for us to miss, and that's in verse 10. And he says, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, which is a title that alludes to Daniel 7, which is what we had for our Old Testament reading. And it talks about there, there's one who is like a Son of Man, who comes from heaven and is given authority by God himself, given authority by the Ancient of Days, and he's given a kingdom, an eternal kingdom, full of glory in which he will reign forever. And in so many words, Jesus here, as he says, that you may know that the Son of Man has, has power to forgive sins. Jesus is telling the scribes that he is this Son of Man. And he rules over his kingdom. And he has the authority to forgive sins. And he alone presides over the door to allow people to come in. And then note, though, in verse 11, then he turns from speaking to the scribes for them to know his authority. And he addresses the paralytic. And this is where the Son of Man heals him. He shows the scribes his authority, but he shows the paralytic his compassionate and his merciful restoration. See, this is what his kingdom is like. It's glory in body and forgiveness in soul. And we all need to be confronted again and again here with who Jesus is. Some of us will look for all the reasons on why we are the exception when it comes to forgiveness. Or we'll struggle with feeling that forgiveness in certain times. And some of us will have trouble holding on to the hope of resurrection in the face of sickness. While others will sometimes walk alongside their friends or family as they suffer. And wonder how God could possibly bring redemption into a situation like this. And in each of those situations or countless other scenarios. We are the ones insisting on what Jesus is like rather than being still for a moment and listening again to who he says that he is. So he's the authority. It's his kingdom. It's his forgiveness that he grants because he is the one who willingly had himself nailed to the cross and took the full wrath of God for every sin of his people. He knows the resurrection life and glory and, re and he knows that restoration better than any of us know right now. Because he's living it. And so let's allow Jesus then to speak to us. Because he's the authority on these matters. He's the great physician who not only knows the right diagnosis. But he also has the cure. And he is the one who has promised to heal us as whole people. Let's pray. Lord God, you look at us. And you see our needs. In better ways that we can. You see our needs as whole people. In body and soul. Whatever physical conditions that we might have. But you know the condition of our insides as well. And your compassion though reaches out to us as whole people. That Jesus you do not just forgive sin. But you also restore and bring resurrection. And you have given your spirit to us. To give us that proof uh, give, to give us that, that bond which, which, which solidifies us to you, Jesus, so that we can have a very real hope in life and in death. And we ask that then that, that you would build up our faith. And no matter what our circumstances are telling us, that you would remind us that not only our sins are forgiven, but that we are part of a kingdom of resurrection that is laid up for us. And Lord, I pray that you would also build up our faith as we are a community of faith. 
that we would not just exercise our faith as individuals, but that we would do so with locking arms with one another, bearing up each other's burdens, um, that we would be reminding us, reminding each other of what it is that we believe, reminding each other of the hope that we all have in common and how we are all beggars in Jesus Christ. We are all in need of restoration, and by your grace, we will all make it home. And so remind us of that as we come now to the table where we have the body and blood of Jesus given for us for our restoration. Prepare our hearts for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.